thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hold in my hand a request handwritten by one of our members. Uh, when she is able to be here, I see her today right back here. And she was asking for prayer. And the gist of her prayer is a reflection of what the Bible says in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7. You're very familiar with the 14th verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and cry out to the Lord and He will hear them and when they turn from their wicked ways, He will heal their land. What a great request, reflecting a heart of one who knows and loves the Lord. This is a time in the history of our nation when we are in great need of such urgency when it comes to the whole issue of prayer for our country. And we looked at Psalm 33 as we began. Some of you missed that, but let me just draw your attention to what it says in the 12th verse. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. If my people who are called by my name. The question is, who are the people of God? When both of these passages were written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the people of God were almost overwhelmingly descendants of Abraham. And we know Abraham as the man whom God used in a mighty way to give us a picture of what real faith is. And we want to consider this morning who are the people of God. Psalm 33, 12 helps us with that. If you have your Bible, please look there. And the 12th verse it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Let me begin by looking at the word nation. When we read this word with our English eyes, it connotes something that would indicate a country which has boundaries. It has some semblance of order within its boundaries in most cases. It's an independent sovereign nation. But there were not many of those kinds of nations. Boundaries were not permanent. They were always moving because one power was trying to gain more power. And the result was that the boundaries were always in flux. There was no border patrol back in that day. There were outposts along what was considered to be the boundaries. But when the scripture talks about blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, let me let you know that the word for nation is simply the word people in its plural form. 
the nation, the people whose God is the Lord. And then he goes on to say, the psalmist does here, in the second part of verse 12, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The net was widened for those who comprise the people of God when Jesus came. And then after Jesus was crucified, paid the price for our sin, was buried, was raised again. He gave his marching orders to his apostles and they were to take the gospel all over the world. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you know that there were Gentiles during the time of the Old Testament who came to faith. And when I use the term Gentile, I think you know what I mean. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. And there were occasions when people would come to know Jesus. Christ Himself used two illustrations when He took up the scroll on the Sabbath, inaugurating His public ministry in His hometown village of Nazareth. And He read the text from the book of Isaiah. And then He began to expound and expand on it. And the two illustrations he used of people who were part of God's family really set a fire in the minds and the hearts of those worshipers in the synagogue there. One was a man named Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army, the whole army of Assyria. He was like the five-star general of Assyria in the army. And the result of that was when he used this illustration of having healed this man, Naaman, of leprosy, and then Jesus makes this comment. This is what really infuriated the people to an even higher level, is he said, it was the only man during the ministry of Elijah who was healed of leprosy. And we know that leprosy was a sign that a person was not in right relationship with God. Then on the heels of that, he talked about Elisha, the successor of Elijah, the two great prophets of Israel, and how when the Lord sent him for assistance, he sent him to a widow of Sidon. This Sidon or Sidonian widow was a Gentile. So Jesus was making it clear to that group of people. I don't know how large it would have been, rather small compared to the whole population of Judaism at that time. But nevertheless, it flew all over them. But we know there are these illustrations of people who were not descendants of Abraham by bloodline. So that was something that we need to take into consideration. But when the Apostle Paul came to know Christ, how did he describe who he was before he came to Christ? He says, I'm, I was an Israelite of the Israelites. I was the Jew of the Jews. I was at the top of the food chain when it came the whole, to the whole matter of being a Jew. And what did God do with the Apostle Paul? He sent him to the Gentile world primarily. He did not wash his hands of his brothers 
and sisters who are also by blood descendants of Abraham. He preached the gospel to them and many of them came to know the Lord. But what we do know is that the people of God is broader than descendants of Abraham. And many Gentiles, obviously, most of us probably are descended from our first ancestor, was probably a Gentile. Blessed is the nation or the people whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Let me pause just a moment and pay attention to that word inheritance. It means literally a special treasure. When the Lord looks at his people, he sees us as his special treasure. It cost him a lot to secure us as his treasure, didn't it? We can tell how valuable something is to the buyer of that item by what price was paid by the buyer. What was the price that was paid for you and for me and all others who are part of the people of God? It was his son, Jesus Christ. He gave his son. In the book of Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this statement. He says, it's rare, I'm doing my own interpretation here, it's rare that a man would give up his own life for another, but certainly the idea of giving up his son, it's just unbelievable. But that's exactly what God did for us to save us from our sin. When the scripture talks about the people of God, it's talking about people who have come to know God by putting their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, regardless of the descent of that person. I'd like to look at one other psalm. If you'll turn back to the 11th psalm for just a moment, and we'll look at the third verse. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, and this would be the foundations of a people, what can the righteous do? And the answer to that, we're going to find out today. If the foundations are destroyed. We read in the book of Ephesians, in the latter part of the section that we read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and by association to us, because we are people who are people of God and most of us are Gentiles, he talks about how these people in Ephesus were once excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. But through Christ, they became part of the commonwealth that would be the people of Israel. And the reason for that is because also in Ephesians 2, when the scripture speaks about what God did in forming an alliance, more than an alliance, it's not like a treaty, but melding together people who were descendants of Abraham who trusted in Christ with Gentiles. And he said, as he wrote, he said, God made the two one 
man. And notice how he said that. Did it strike you as odd? He said, one new man. What is that all about? How can two people groups become one man? Well, the answer, I believe, is in the understanding that the church, among other things, is the body of Christ. Christ is present in the church. If He were at any moment to leave the body of Christ, it would no longer be the body of Christ, obviously, and it would have no life whatsoever. But it's amazing what God did in bringing people who had quite a bit of hostility toward each other and bringing them together and making them into one body that was the expression and remains to this day the expression of who Jesus is and the means whereby Jesus accomplishes His purpose on earth. The foundations, this word foundations is relevant to us and I want to make a transition here and quote Abraham Lincoln, one of our forefathers in government. And he was a witty guy. And I don't know if he was trying to be witty when he said this. I think he was saying what he sensed. He said, America is the almost chosen people of God. Not completely, but almost the chosen people of God. He did not elaborate on what he meant, but we get the gist of what he was saying, almost chosen people of God. And in saying that, he uses the word chosen. And we saw over in Psalm 33:12 that a nation blesses the nation whose God is the Lord. That group of people who make up that nation and have the Lord as their God, those people are people whom He chose. So when we think of the foundation of the people of God, whatever nationality they have from the viewpoint of humanity, whatever nationality they have, they have been chosen by God. Are you aware that if you know God through Jesus Christ, that He chose you in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight? That's mind-blowing, isn't it? That before there was anything material, God thought of you. And He had you and me in mind, we who have trusted in Him. Phenomenal. He had a plan for us. And we're part of a bigger plan in the sense that we're part of a body. We maintain our individuality. That's never violated from God's perspective. And He does have a plan to use you and me for the progression and the development of the body of Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. He chose us in Christ to be holy. That means to be set apart for His use and blameless. That speaks for itself in His kingdom. So, what about America? Was Lincoln right when he said that America or the United States at the time that he said it is the almost chosen of God? Well, let's think about that a moment. 
We know from our study of history that many of our forefathers who came from Europe came to the United States as we know it and to the eastern seaboard of our country and they came with a purpose. We know about the Mayflower. The Mayflower, I'll give you a little quick sketch of what that boat was like. The entire surface above water was about the size of a large tennis court. Some of you watched the Wimbledon tennis match a couple of weeks ago. Can you imagine? That was all the square footage that that boat had. Then underneath the gun level where guns would, this had been a warship, it was not a warship at the time, but the highest height underneath there where they lived, there were 102 passengers and counting children, counting including children, 102 passengers. In addition to that, there were 25 crew members and they were stuffed together underneath there and it was only five feet from the floor of that area to the top. The children could walk around with no problem. People were shorter that day, so it made it a little better maybe for some of the adults, but some of them had to almost crawl probably to get around. They were at sea for 66 days. They suffered all that because they had originated in England prior to coming to our shores. They fled England because of Charles I's antagonistic attitude toward anybody who was not a member of the Church of England. He was more kindly disposed to those who were formal members of the Roman Catholic Church than he was to people whom he viewed as miscreants spiritually, people who were really rebellious. And so they left for Holland. Holland was a place of safety and peace for anyone who is seeking religious freedom. They went there and they were able to teach the Word of God as they believed it. And their numbers increased while they were there. They increased by what we would call transfer of letter from their churches that they were in in England and joining them there, hearing about what was going on and the pleasure it was to worship the Lord without any problems of being put into prison or things of that sort ridiculed for sure. But then there were some even in Holland who were Dutch people who gave their lives to Christ. Their pastor was a man named John Robinson. He was a good shepherd. And as the leaders of the church got together, they began to say, let's pray and see what the Lord wants for us as His people. And they got consensus as they prayed, their leaders did, and the congregation stood behind them that they were being called by the Lord to go back to England, gather anybody they could there, get a boat that would take them across the Atlantic to Virginia. Now we know they didn't land in Virginia. They landed at Plymouth Rock. Some of you have been there. It's kind of a, not that big a deal to look at. It's just a rock, you know, on the shore. But it's a cool place because of what it stands for and what happened there. But what we know is these people came and when they were in 
the area right off the shore, they signed what we know as the Mayflower Compact. Listen, just part of it. By the way, John Winthrop and others who followed used this Mayflower Compact to be the cornerstone of what eventually became representative government in our country. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of king and country a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. You probably know from your American history that the colony of Jamestown was founded in 1607. This is 1620 when this group arrived. But that venture was quite different. The mission of that group of people didn't even vaguely resemble the mission that these people who wrote and signed the Mayflower Flower Compact knew they were on. They were under marching orders of the Lord. They were an example of the people of God. According to historical records, there was only one pastor who came to Jamestown. And by the way, to show you the difference in the size between the Mayflower group, these pilgrims, and those who found their way up the James River in the area of what today is New Jersey, from 1619 to 1622, there were 3,200 people who were there. That's a pretty good-sized colony, isn't it? 3,000 of whom died. They died of disease. They died probably killing each other because they couldn't get along with each other. But in engaging the Native Americans in that area, many of them lost their lives. The one pastor was a man who didn't live very long himself. He died due to some disease that he contracted there. And it was a wild and woolly. It'd be like the Wild West. It wasn't very far west, but it was, it was as wild as the West was because people came there for a totally different reason. They came for personal gain. Whereas the people who were in the Mayflower Compact group they weren't perfect people by any means, but they sensed the Lord had led them there. They were following the Lord. They were a chosen people in that sense. I'd like to share just a few more details. I don't want to spend too long on this, but I want to share some things that I have found in my research about the early settlers here and then some even over a hundred or more years later, and people whom we would call our founding fathers said they were people who were committed to the Lord for sure. A man by the name of Daniel Dreisbach wrote a book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and what he discovered was that as he looked at the things they said and wrote, he found that there was one verse of Scripture which was recurring over and over again. It's from Micah 
You know how it goes. It says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? For example, John Adams, our second president, when you read things that he wrote, and he wrote prolifically, he would frequently cite that scripture. And it was indicative of his own heart. He and his wife Abigail were devout believers in Jesus. They loved the Lord. And they wanted the country to understand that this is the way that we are to live. And also when George Washington resigned his position as the commander of the Continental Army in his farewell address to the soldiers whom he loved and with whom he had served to liberate the colonies. He quoted that verse. It's a great verse. John Winthrop, I mentioned him a little earlier. He was a preacher of that time early in the advent of the people of God to this country in the 17th century. He is the one who made the phrase, America is a city on a hill. Remember that? We hear it quoted frequently by politicians to this day. But what we know is that he also was one who was constantly, it seemed, quoting this verse from Micah 6 eight. The Word of God was important, to say the least. Here's what's interesting. I had forgotten this, and maybe you knew it or know it now. It won't be news to you. But almost immediately after the Revolutionary War ended, there was a cessation of seeking the Lord. The pressure was off. And then to fill the vacuum under the leadership of Thomas Paine. You know the name Thomas Paine probably. One of the patriots. He was an atheist and he wrote prolifically and with no reserve as it related to his feelings about, negative feelings I might add, about Christianity. He was on a rampage. It was his mission, apparently, to debunk the Bible and to reject the Christian faith out of hand. And this man was a man who wrote a book. I'm talking about the man Thomas Paine, The Age of Reason. Some of you may have read that book. And it's a treatise designed to try to tear down the Christian faith. There was a man about this time, he was part of the First Continental Congress. He was appointed to that or elected to it, I can't remember which, in 1777. And then two years later in 1779, he was appointed by George Washington who was presiding over that Congress. And he became one of the members of it. In fact, he became the president himself of the Congress. And he was the one who signed the Treaty of Paris ending the War of Independence. He wrote a book in response to Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason. Let me give you the title. I'll have to read it so long. The Age of Revelation, colon, or the age of reason shown to be an age of infidelity. It was his apologetic for whatever the age of reason was trying to communicate. Let me read something he said about the Bible. 
this is this man. His name was Boudinot, and this is what he wrote. For nearly half a century have I anxiously and critically studied that invaluable treasure, the Bible, and I still scarcely ever take it up that I do not find something new, that I do not receive some valuable addition to my stock of knowledge or perceive some instructive fact never observed before. In short, were you to ask me to recommend the most valuable book in the world, I should fix on the Bible as the most instructive both to wise and to ignorant. Well said, wouldn't you agree? Definitely. The country fell quickly and deeply into a complacent, if not aggressively antagonistic country, especially in the universities, as the professors there were influenced by the Enlightenment and the thing, one of the things that was spawned in Europe, the French Revolution. And the result was that there was just a lot of cynicism and really antagonism within the student bodies. It's kind of reminiscent of what we see today or what we saw back in the 60s, how people were just agitated and angry about anything having to do with Christianity. There were three young men who attended in the state of Virginia Hampton Sydney College. Their names were Carrie Allen, William Hill, and James Blythe. Carrie Allen was a Christian, but a closet Christian. He was afraid to come out because he didn't want to get expelled from the school or run out from the school. William Hill found a book, and the book is entitled Alarm to the Unconverted. One of the students, James Blythe, this is the third student, saw him reading it and it scared William Hill. He felt like he was found out, but he asked what the title was and when he simply mentioned the title, this man, James Blythe, burst into tears, sobbing, because he came under conviction of the Holy Spirit and he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. These three men agreed they would go into the woods, which were very thick in their area, about a mile in, and they would have a prayer meeting on a given Saturday. After they had had that prayer meeting, they decided, we need not be afraid. We'll have a prayer meeting on the campus in one of our rooms, and that they did. They were found out. They were exposed. They were brought before the student body. They were ridiculed. They were in harm's way. The president was at that meeting. He calmed things down and he said, listen, let's, let's hear what they have to say. They said their part. And then the Bible says, not the Bible, but the, the book that I read about it says that the president's eyes filled with tears. And after a short, short pause, he said, has it come to this? Is it possible? Some of my students are under religious impressions. He's being set, he's been sarcastic here, and determined to serve their Savior? And is it possible that there are such monsters of iniquity in college who dare set themselves against such things? Some of our own members who are in college or have been during the time I've been here have told me of the ridicule 
that they have exper experienced at UTEP and probably other places too from professors who are evangelists to do away with the notion that the Bible is a reliable text and that therefore Christ is just some kind of mythical figure made up by a group of people to try to put forward their views of life. Well, we know that there was a man, two men really, who were instrumental more than that, two who are more obvious, Jonathan Edwards, remember this famous sermon he prepared and gave in his church? It is sinners in the hands of a, just an angry God. I remember reading that when I was a junior in high school. It's kind of scary, really, for a 16, 17-year-old. But here's what we need to know about Edwards. A careful study of the sermons, which we have copies are today, and there are many of them. He was usually a, one who was not that strong in his teaching. But we know that sermon was one that really lit a fire in New England. A lot of people came to know the Lord through this man. There was also another man from England. He came across, his name of the, across the waters, his name is George Whitfield. Whitfield was quite the evangelist. He made seven trips across the Atlantic during the early part of that 18th century. And this second great awakening came as a result of the ministry of persons like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. One person calculates that George Whitfield, in those seven visits to the United States, preached to 80% of the adult population. How they get that figure, I cannot tell you, but it comes from a reliable source. And it's pretty interesting to think how God used this man. Now, he was highly educated. He was a graduate of Oxford, and he was a man who knew the Lord and loved the Lord, and he preached the gospel with great fire. His favorite text was, you must be born again. He would speak to upwards of 4,000 people out of doors, no amplification, he had such a voice he could do that. And the verse that he used was, you must be born again. He loved that. He didn't use it every time, but he used it frequently. And so there was a woman who had been to hear him preach more than once, and she spoke to him afterwards, and she said, Mr. Whitfield, don't you have any other verse of Scripture that you know? Don't you think you're overdoing it, Wes? this command, you must be born again. Why do you do it? And so the story goes, he looked at her and he said, Madam, you must. You must be born again. That's why. He had that on his heart. Well, what we know is this second great awakening followed the first awakening, which was so important. All the awakenings that our country has experienced. Incredibly important. The last awakening, which was in 1857, was set in New York City. A layman by the name of Jeremiah Lemphere. He was a deacon in a reformed Dutch church there in the city. He got permission from the vestry that he could 
have noontime prayer meetings. He went up and down Wall Street handing out notification that on a certain day these prayer meetings would begin inviting people to do the thing he was going to do is pray. First day he was there at noon. Nobody came at 12, 12.15, 12.25. So he went to praying and about 12.40, two men came in and ended up there were six men counting himself and they prayed. Going forward, it got to where the businesses closed on Wall Street. Within a few weeks, they were closed. All the people were going for prayer and a revival broke out at of in all places, New York City. And it spread throughout the colonies. There were 30 million people who lived in the United States at that time. One million, it's estimated, came to know faith in that time. Because a layman believed God that God wanted to bring renewal to the United States. It had fallen into such bad situation. America has had an incredible amount of favor from God. And I think it's directly related to the fact that people have responded to Him. The foundation of the work of God among His people is always the Word of God. When God came to Abraham, He was known as Abram, of course, at that time, and if you'll turn to Genesis for a moment, we'll look at three times that God interacted with Abraham, or Abram as he is known at this point in his life. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. It's the same word, a great people group, a great tribe, not a nation that we think of as a nation. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That would include us who are Gentiles, by the way. Let's now turn to the 15th chapter. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord. Notice this. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. See the importance of the word of the Lord. The foundation of the, any people of God is the word of the Lord. Going back to Ephesians 2, which we read, and how Paul writes to the one new man, the body of Christ, the members there in Ephesus, and he tells them, that they are people who have a faith that's based on the apostles and the prophets. What do you think he meant by that? The apostles wrote what part of our Bible? The New Testament, right? What about the prophets? Largely, they were responsible for what we call 
the Old Testament. So the Word of God is the foundation. Is the Word of God held in high esteem in this country anymore? We do. I hope you do. But what we know is there's been a waning there. And I want to go back one more time to what the Lord said through Solomon, to Solomon, when he spoke to the people on the day that the temple of Solomon was dedicated. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and then I will heal their land. What is the key that unlocks the door to a future in the United States of America that will be one that is definitely indicative of the grace of God. It would be your and my getting before the Lord in humility and asking Him to search us, try us, expose anything in my life. I, I'm, I'm including myself probably foremost in this. Anything that would be a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. Because there's no human government that has been able to sustain a nation, no matter how good it is. It's only been a government, if it has been a tool in God's hands, to advance His cause. It's a, a government that is steeped in the truth of God's Word and have leaders like that. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. In another great awakening in Wales, and it made its way over secondarily to the United States, it occurred in the first decade of the 20th century in the 1900s. People in Wales, almost all people came to know Christ. These were religious people, okay? They went to church, but they didn't know Jesus. And what we're told is that the policemen formed barbershop quartets because there was no crime to legislate. And that the coal mining industry, which was big industry, may still be in Wales today, coal miners came to know Christ. And they were a hard lot to get to know Jesus. And their animals, their donkeys, who would haul these wagon loads of coal from the bowels of the mines up out, they quit responding to their urging them to come because they quit cursing. The words they used were no longer in their mouths. I talked to a young man yesterday after church last night and he just confessed to me, he said, Pastor, I lost my cool today. It was not with a person, it was with a machine, he said. I can relate to that. And he said, I just blurted out all kind of obscenities. And I've been trying so hard for two years. He said I was hooked on porn up until two years ago, and God delivered me from that, but I still retain this foul language. So here were these people who had that foul language. They came to know Christ, and it changed them. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. So what we know is, also about the Wales, Welsh revival is that the saloons had to shut down. There were no people who came. Drunkenness evaporated. 
there. It was because of the work of the Lord. The word of the Lord came, verse 4, 15. Abraham, this man will not be your heir, but one shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. I quickly go to the 22nd chapter of Genesis. We're going to look beginning with verse 16. We're going to interrupt a conversation. Remember, the background of this is that God told Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him to God. Abraham did it. There's no sign that he balked at it, that he argued with God about it. He got there and the Lord provided a sacrifice to substitute in for Isaac. Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, obeyed the Lord, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations, the seed would be Jesus Christ, by the way, descendant of David, descendant of Abraham. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This man, Abraham, is a prototype of a man of faith. He's the only man who is called by name the friend of God. The Lord has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we are, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are a chosen people. And no offense to the people who are descendants of Abraham, thank God for the Jewish people. I love, I have a heart for Jewish people that wants them to know Jesus as their Messiah. But what we need to understand is, in the kingdom of God, there is neither, remember what Paul said? In Christ there's neither Jew nor what? Gentile. We are one. It is one body of believers and that flies in the face of people in this room, I'm sure, who have a dispensational viewpoint of theology. But read the Scripture. Read it without having influence from somebody on the outside who is very convincing. We need to know we're part of a body of believers, which is comprised of all kinds of people, all people groups in the world, which is exciting to think about. So, the foundations, the Word of God and prayer. If we were to take time to go into the book of Second Chronicles and look at how what the writer of Psalm 11 says, what he says, if the foundations are destroyed, that means just obliterated, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What we can do is do what we were called out of darkness into marvelous light to do. We are to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask us for the hope that is within us. We are to be people who freely and spontaneously and regularly 
Share the good news, the gospel. I'm repeating myself, but I don't make apology for it. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. If we were as excited about sharing the gospel as disturbed about the spiritual condition of people in this United States as we are about our country as a nation in a big way nation, then there'd be a revival that would break out in this country. And it has to do with me, it has to do with you. If we humble ourselves and we say to the Lord, Lord, help me to be a, a tool in your hand to spread the gospel to my neighbors and to people just to sow the seed of the Word of God. Foundations, deterioration, great deterioration occurred and it was directly related if we go back to 33.12 of the Psalms where it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Upon casual observance of that statement, I'm saying, well, why does he have to say whose God is the Lord? Isn't the Lord God? Well, yes, He is. But what we need to understand is God was certainly concerned about the people when they go into the promised land and He tells them not to do certain things, not to intermarry with people there, to wipe those people out. And people say, how cruel. In the book of Genesis 15, we looked at it, but we didn't look at this part. Do you know that God gave the Ammonites, the Amorites, all those Hittites and all those ites who made up Canaan, He gave them 400 years to repent. 400 years. He gave them the opportunity to repent. And they did not repent. It's God's business what He does with people in terms of punishment. It's not my business or your business. But we know He does things that are fair. He never does anything that's not fair. Fair means just. He's a just God. And He appeals to people. Even people who never heard the Gospel have a voice in their hearts that tells them there is a God. But the gods of Canaan, the Promised Land, were hideous. They were demons, actually. Baal, or Baal as we call him. I do from the south call him Baal. He was the god of fertility in terms of the earth producing fruit, but also in regard to the inner course between a man and a woman. And so part of that religious, the worship, religious practices was there was that kind of orgy associated with the worship. Asherah was his consort, his female counterpart. Chemosh was the Moabite god who really was Baal or Baal. Baal. And on and on it goes. Molech, you know Molech or Moloch depending on where you read it, the name. He was a god who required human sacrifice. And so even kings of Judah, one especially comes to mind, Manasseh, it says he sacrificed his own children to this false god. And it was the children were burned to death as a sacrifice. Unbelievable. I can't imagine that, can you? But that was the danger. And so what the Word of God tells us is that we're to be people who are after God's own heart. And we're not 
to compromise with the world, which is under the influence of Satan. The restoration, well, we can be part of the restoration when there is a decline. There were two great kings who followed Solomon. Of all the other Judean kings, there were two great kings. Hezekiah, if you know his story, great man, was used mightily. He brought a reformation, if you will, a restoration. And then Josiah, two or three generations forward, he was the last king, practically speaking. There were three others, but they were very, very few months in their roles. One was less than even a month. And what we know is that he was the one who had a heart that was bigger than any king, the Bible says, in all of Judah's history, even bigger than David's, it would imply. But anyhow, these guys were used to restore. But do you know who was behind Hezekiah? Isaiah, the word of the Lord. Do you know who was behind Josiah? Jeremiah, the prophet. Read it. And this is what the Lord wants us to understand. We love our country. I love this country. But we need to know that our primary citizenship is in heaven. Isn't that what the Bible says? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. So let's make that citizenship the one that drives us and gives us understanding of how we're to be the best America could have. And let's see if God doesn't hold true to His Word. That He will forgive our sin and heal our land. Lord, we thank You for this time to worship today. Please take this feeble effort on my part to communicate this truth. Help us to love You more than we love ourselves and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Help us not to be ashamed of You and Your words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Lord. We ask this in Your name. Amen. Amen.